Hey, Sarah, welcome to the Rising Executive Podcast. This is a podcast where we interview some of the best up-and-coming leaders in tech and startups, so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And for those listening, Sarah is VP of Marketing at a startup called Chain.io. And there are a few things I want to discuss with you today, Sarah. Specifically, I want to kind of dig deep into startups. I know that that's something you're passionate about and you're interested in, and that's a topic that we discuss often on the podcast. So what I want to start with is founder CEOs. Um, so I know you've worked for sort of multiple companies and multiple startups. And when you're evaluating what startup to join, what do you look for in the founder CEOs of those companies? That's a great question. I am, I've been working in startups for about 20 years now, and I, I sort of fell into it accidentally and have just absolutely loved it. I love that I've had an opportunity to grow my career much faster and do different things and learn so much in the startup world that I think I wouldn't if I was in, you know, a much bigger public company or enterprise setting. But I do think based on my experience, and I've worked on staff at a handful of startups, but I've also consulted with many, many, many startups. Um, And I think that the founder CEO personality is, is much more important than people maybe account for. Because the truth is that until you're about 100 people, the founder CEO is going to determine the culture for the company completely. And if that person is a jerk, then they're going to tolerate jerky behavior from others on the executive team and others um, within the company, the culture is going to be terrible. There's going to be backbiting. There's going to be competition, negativity. All of those things flow down from the CEO founder. And I think once you get a little bit bigger, the, the culture can be determined more by HR and, I mean, a little bit bigger. I think the CEO obviously is still important, but when you're under 100 people, everybody in the company is going to be interacting with the CEO. And it can be really hard to tell in an interview what they're like. And so one of the things that I really recommend is either asking for references. I, I, I tried this once and I was kind of surprised it worked. I was talking to a, a, a CEO and I said, he, he asked for my references and I said, it's a shame that I can't ask for your references, too, because that's not done. And he was like, he kind of laughed. He was kind of tickled. And he said, well, I don't see any reason why you couldn't ask for my references. And he set me up to talk to a VP of marketing that had worked with him before. And she and I talked on the phone that night. And she told me you know, everything about what he was like and what he did and, and how he treated people and what his weak spots were and what his strong spots were. And, you know, it's it's funny because I think when often when you're interviewing, so I'm in marketing, when you're interviewing a VP of marketing, you're like, can you do this? Can you manage people? Can you, do you have these skills? Do you understand these marketing um, disciplines? For a CEO, you want to first understand that their vision for the company is good because working for a startup has a bit more risk. And so you want to feel confident that you're joining a, a, a company that's on the way up. But I think it's really important to understand how she or he treats people and what are they like under pressure. And these are questions that I actually ask in an interview. If I'm being interviewed and we get to the point where they are feeling like confident about me and want to offer me the job, I say, what do you like under pressure? What do you give me an example of, of a time that someone on your executive team messed up? How did you handle it? Tell me about something you won't tolerate on your staff. 
Tell me about something that ha is happening on your staff that you wish wasn't happening. Because I want to hear what they say and are they just letting these problems fester or are they, are they addressing them head on? I want to know, are they asking for help from other founder CEOs? Or are they kind of trying to, you know, go it alone all the time and prove that they know everything? Um, these are all kind of things that I look for um, in a founder CEO because, and they're, and they're hard to find. They're hard to find because the truth is the kind of personality that can go out and ask for $10, 15000000 million that can start an, a, a company based on an idea tends to be tends to have narcissism, bravado, you know, all these other things in their personality. And so I personally need to have a strong, I need to have a strong belief that they have an ethical foundation um, and, and a kindness to them. That's what I'm looking for in a, in a founder CEO. Yeah. And when you run into founder CEOs that are, you know, sort of tenacious, very product oriented, but don't care as much about culture and leadership, how do you evaluate those kind of CEOs? Well, I wouldn't choose to work for them. So you're, you're asking how do I tell that that's how they're going to be? No, more so like if you do come across those, like they're just amazingly talented. They're, you can tell they're just amazing at product. They're going to take the company forward, but they don't care as much about culture and leadership. Does that something that you're not looking for generally? For me, yeah. that is something I would not be looking for because for yeah. me, I am also talented and really good at my job. And so I feel like I kind of have the pick of the litter and I can choose who I want to work for. And I'm looking for somebody that is also going to care about culture and leadership. And it, there's a lot of younger CEOs out there that may not know everything and that's fine. It's, it's more about sort of the willingness to learn, you know, are they, are they trying to learn about leadership? Are they trying to absorb that? Are they willing to have people around them that can teach them things about leadership and internal communications? If, if I straight up ran up against a CEO who I thought was brilliant, who had a billion dollar idea, who was a jerk, I would not, I would not work for that person because for me, I don't, I don't value the money or the big payout above the working relationship of how I'm going to work with this man or woman or person for however many years until we get the payout. I mean, it, there's just no sense in being miserable in your work life. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it is very rare. And what I found is exactly the reason you're saying is these founders generally have a certain type of personality and they're not, especially if they're younger, they don't care as much about the leadership, EQ, soft skill, culture side of the equation, which is incredibly important to build a great exec team, you know? Uh, so 100% agree with that. Um, and I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk about sort of your early experience of startups and and the benefits that th those have. So, you know, when you join a company, when you join a startup, one of the main benefits is you get to be in the room with the C-suite earlier on in your career than you would be at a big company. So what have you found to be the main benefits of being into the in those rooms early in your career? That's a great question. I think... Um... I, there's a few things. I think you just have an op, and this is, again, if you're working for a leader that you really believe in, whether it's the CEO or another C-suite or, or executive team member, a good startup leader should be giving you access to behind the scenes, how they're making decisions, how they are deciding how to lead meetings, how they're deciding how to, how to move forward. So when I was early in my career, as I said, I sort of fell into startups because I was working at a consulting firm 
And one of our customers was a university and the professor at the university started a startup, a technology startup based on his, his, um, his IP. And he didn't know who else to go to. So he was like, Hey, do you want to be my, my PR firm and, and do some marketing for me for the startup? And we didn't really know what we were doing, but we did it. And, um, I got to know that CEO really, really well. He eventually hired me on staff. And at that point I was a senior director, but I showed him that I was a strategic thinker and could contribute at a higher level. And so I got to be in meetings to see him working out problems that I would face later in my career. And I think that if I was a senior director of communications at Google, I, first of all, I would never meet the CEO. I probably would never meet the CMO. I probably would never meet anybody in the C-suite. Um, and I have learned a tremendous amount. When that, that particular person, whose name is Larry Freed, was, it still is Larry Freed, um, was a really strong leader in many ways. And I learned so much from watching him navigate conflicts between staff members both interpersonal conflicts and also how to prioritize product enhancements. I learned, he taught me one of the biggest lessons of my careers, which is my career, which is that he said, I want you to listen like you're wrong and argue like you're right. And then when I make the decision, you have to carry it forward because I could do the arguing part. But then I kind of had a hard time setting it down. And there was a specific time when we were rolling out a new brand and he wanted to roll out the logo before the rest of the brand. And I thought this was insane, terrible, completely disagreed with him. And I said, you know, if you surveyed 10 marketing people, all 10 of them will disagree with me. I, I made the case and, and he said, look, it's over. I've decided this. And he said, now you need to go to your team and I don't want you to say, Larry just made this crazy decision and now we have to do it. If, if the decision that I make is not unethical or illegal or something that you like deeply, deeply disagree with in a fundamental way, your job is to argue your point until a decision is made and then carry, carry that decision forward as though it's your decision. And I still think about that because I view my role on the executive team as speaking truth to power, as telling the, the chief executive, I think you're making a miss here. I think we ought to do this, you know, giving my opinion there, that's, part of my role, but when the decision is made, she's the boss, he's the boss, and you and you have to carry it forward. So I think when you get to be in the room with good leaders, and again, why it's important to work for a good leader, I don't need to learn how to be a good, good engineer or a good product manager, because that's not my career path. So for me to work for a CEO who's a great engineer or a great product person, I'm not gonna learn as much from them. I wanna learn from someone I want to learn how did you decide to do this acquisition or this acquisition? How did you decide when this person offered you this amount of money that you're going to say no to that? Or when do you take this to the board? I've been given opportunities to present to boards, present budgets to boards, learn about all of that stuff. And then there's the whole aspect of learning about the actual business. What is EBITDA? What is ACV? All those kinds of things that you learn how a startup runs, how valuation runs how to get a higher valuation, all those things I think you learn when you're in the room where it happens. Whereas if you are at a big company and you're just at your desk doing your job in, 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 the, narrow, in the narrow definition, you're not gonna have exposure 
to any of that. And I think, I think that's all really interesting. And you can sort of do whatever you prove you can do. If, if you're, if you're a smart, talented person, there's going to be a time at a startup where there's a job that needs to be done that, and there's no one to do it. And you can raise your hand and say, I can do it and, and expand your career path that way. Yeah. And there's a couple of interesting things that you said that I want to dig a little bit more into. So in the example that you gave that you're in the room with the CEO and you're able to express disagreement for a lot of just young professionals or, you know, middle manager professionals that are in those rooms at startups with the CEO, how would you encourage them to be honest with the CEO without getting intimidated, especially if they're earlier on in their careers? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I mean, so again, it comes back to, I think, working for a CEO that surrounds themselves with people that, you, you know, you're going to observe, do other people get to argue with the CEO and does that work well? Um, I don't think you have to be, I would say, I think a huge value that the executive team provides to the CEO or that the advisor team provides is that sort of being able to bounce off and tell the truth. And if you're working for someone that can't ever take criticism or questions, that's not a good sign. Um, you should be work you should be looking for their willingness to hear and it doesn't mean you're going to win, but I mean, I guess I would say if you work for a CEO where you see other people doing that successfully, I think actually one of the biggest values you can provide is to speak up and tell them when you disagree and even use that, that little story that I told, I, the new CEO that I'm working with now who I've been with for about a year, I told him that story. I said, I had this mentor who said to me, listen, like you're wrong, argue like you're right. So listen, like you're wrong be taking in what the other what the other viewpoint is and really consider that they might be right. Argue like you're right, make your strongest point, and then when the decision's made, you carry it forth as if it's your own. And I think that you could even say that one-on-one -on -one to the CEO and say, that's my philosophy. I'm going to listen like I'm right, I listen like I'm wrong, argue like I'm right, and then you make the decision. Um, I, I think it would be fine to, to be blunt about that. And then you just start to feel it out and you'll start to see what works and what doesn't. I think it's a good idea to have an alternate suggestion. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel good to anybody just to have somebody come and say, that idea is bad, that idea is bad, that idea is bad. Um, so it, it helps when you have a, a thought about how you might improve the idea. But don't ever, don't ever discount the value of speaking truth to power. My management philosophy is I'm very nice down and I'm very blunt up. And I'm, I almost feel like sometimes I'm two different people. Like I will be very, very blunt and direct to someone who has more power over me. And I'm very, very kind, supportive, gentle with the people that work for me that have less power than me. Yeah. And I think that's also a very important point because I think when people are reporting to you, there's a certain power dynamic where yeah. If you're too, almost too direct and blunt, they might feel intimidated to give their honest opinions, right? So I really like that way of thinking about it, actually. And I think that's great advice for young leaders. I guess my question is, and you hinted at this before when, when you gave your answer, is that a lot of this depends on culture, right? Like, does your company have a culture where people can be honest with each other? And that's probably a huge determinant of whether a young leader is going to be honest with their C-suite or with the CEO. How many of the companies have you worked for have that culture of transparency and directness versus versus not? 
Well, they all say they do. They all say yeah. they do. They will all say they do in the interview. And that's, again, I think something you can ask in an interview process. This It can be intimidating to ask, like, are you good enough for me? But but what I would really say in a, in a job, I'm kind of answering your question in a roundabout way. A recent job interview I did, I kind of had the realization for the first time in my 40s that this is really about finding the good fit. This is not about getting every job. This is about finding the fit that is going to be good for them and be good for me. And so it can be intimidating to ask in an interview, you know, do you like people to disagree with you in front of the executive team or do you like it to be done in private? And just ask them that because some people really don't like to be, they, they feel like it's being undermined. Um, that would be a little bit of a warning sign for me if they said I only like to be disagreed with in private. Um, I think that so you can ask those you can ask those questions in the interview process. I think the what I have seen so you asked me how many I've worked for that have had that. My experience is that when they're small, there tends to be a very healthy feedback loop. And as they get bigger, that is challenged. What what happens is that as you bring on more and more, you build out the executive team and you build out the executive team with people who have experience at bigger companies, they're more likely to be butt kissers and they're more likely to not tell the truth and it can change the culture of the management team. And so, and, and then I would also say there are specific companies that I would say nothing against any individual at Oracle, but when I look at someone who has been in a leadership position at Oracle, they have a very specific culture there that is a culture of not asking for help, not a lot of intellectual generosity. I would I would really want to understand that they didn't like those things about Oracle before I would hire them. So there are certain companies like tend to be huge IT companies where when you start to have a lot of influx from huge IT companies onto your leadership team, you're going to be bringing in the culture of those huge IT companies. And it, and it can start to shift the tenor of the management meetings and everybody just sort of starts to say, yes, 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 ma'am, yes, sir, that sounds like a great idea. And I, it has been my experience that that happens around 50 million ARR. You start to, you start to bring in the people with the with the big corporate experience that are sort of dabbling in startups and they they don't necessarily have the the ethos of the startup move fast build fast break stuff be honest with each other team they just don't have it because the, i think the corporate environment is so different yeah I mean, that's definitely true right it's if you work if you're a leader at a big company your incentive structure just the way you move and handle your career is just way different, right? Because those environments tend to be more politicized, whereas startups, it's really about like, we need to get things done or we're going to fail, right? And that tends to lead to more of a, an honest and fast moving culture. So definitely consistent with my experiences in my network as well. I, uh, I worked for one company that I felt navigated that transition pretty well, but it was so intentional and they spent so much time and money doing it. I mean, they went basically from zero to you know, 250 million and spent just a ton of time and effort on culture. And 
they did four quarterly all hands where they got everybody together, including flying everybody in from other places. They did invited spouses to the holiday party, you know, flying in spouses. They just spent a ton of time and effort on sort of team building and, and culture building. And they managed, but, and even still, we had a few hires for the executive team that were just those sort of really corporate yes men type of people. And it, and it still did change. And I think that's something for CEOs to really pay attention to as you grow. It feels nice to have a room of smart people who have worked at Oracle and Salesforce tell you that you're a genius. But if everybody in the room is telling you you're a genius all the time, you're not making the best decisions. That is just the truth. For sure. And just to shift gears a little bit, um, another thing I want to talk to you about, Sarah. So I know that you're a longtime manager. You're, you've managed people that are sort of up and coming in the sense that, you know, they're part of the younger generation. And I wanted to kind of dig into this topic with you a little bit. So, you know, there's a lot being said about, you know, Gen Z professionals that are coming into the startup market and the expectations they have for employers and for managers. They want better work-life balance. They want more benefits and their expectations are just very high or they, they, they at least they were going into this economic market. What's been your experience with managing the up and coming generation? Yeah, it's, it's completely what you said. I think actually one of the biggest challenges I think in, in the startup world specifically is the shift to remote work because the old startup model was sort of the work hard, play hard. You have people working all hours, but then you have free food and free snacks and you have pool tables and you have little, I remember I worked for one startup in, um, San Francisco that was like, it was like a Saturday Night Live skit of a startup. It was like they had nap pods and, and, and um, pool tables everywhere and, you know, like a hoodie library where you could rent a hoodie for the day, you know, borrow a hoodie for the day. I mean, it was just, it was kind of funny, but, um, and then with the pandemic and with more work going so, so you get this sense of camaraderie because you're all working together. And, and at this particular company, they would do pickleback shots every Thursday night, like after work. Um, it was a very young kind of scene. With the pandemic and with everybody going remote, I think managers expect people to work that much and be that dedicated, but they don't have the camaraderie. And you just can't replicate it on Zoom. You just can't. And so I, I see a lot of managers who are like, this is a startup, you know, when you, when you join a startup, you expect to work hard. You expect to be, you know, busting your butt and working all hours. It's like, it's a really different thing to be working 10, 12 hour, 15 hour days in an office where you can take a minute and play ping pong or chat at the water cooler or go get a free quest bar or a free hint water, you know, a free kombucha from the kitchen versus like being in your house working 15 hours. It's impossible. And so I think that I think that every generation has something to learn from the older and the younger. And so I'm generation X and it's funny because I feel like baby boomers still talk about millennials as though they are the like young unwashed <laughs> masses and millennials like have mortgages and kids now. It's like, it's, they're not, they're not the babies anymore. Um, I, I think we have to really, with an open mind, look at what each generation has to offer. And I think that Gen Z's insistence on good work-life balance, expectation of good work-life balance, 
I think sometimes comes across as entitled, but I find it delightful. I find it absolutely delightful. And I think that the best workers are going to be able to insist on that and not work for companies that don't have it. Yeah. And it makes sense, right? As the generations go on. I mean, I feel like every generation says that about the younger generation is that they're entitled, right? I feel like the older generation above me said that about us and we're saying that about the generation younger than us. So that's always true. Uh, But I do see, like, I talk to startup leaders all the time and startup managers all the time. And I do think some of them struggle with managing the up and coming generation because they don't they don't think the way that you're saying, which is like, what do they bring to the table? Why is, what is the reason they're saying the things that they're saying? And I think for a lot of the up and coming generation, it's like, you know, the, work and life are not the same thing, right? There has to be more to it than that. And companies are making so much money off of our backs. We should have more benefits and, and that's why expectations are higher. So it kind of, it kind of does make sense. And it's nice to see, hear that you actually enjoy that aspect of it? Because I feel like a lot of the managers I talk to do not handle it well. They're just like, my direct reports are entitled. They never want to work. They don't, they always want to be on vacation. So I feel like you're taking a more empathetic approach to to managing the young generation. I mean, I kind of look at it as like, what can I learn from it? You know, I I think that my generation is not necessarily like super sane and well-adjusted. And so maybe we could learn something from people who want to take a little more vacation and have more, have more perks. Um, And I think that, Absolutely. There, yeah, there's adjustments, but the research is so clear. It's so clear that you get more out of people when they have a good work-life balance. You get, there, there's, just, there's certain things that are undeniable. More diverse teams function better. People who take more vacation function better. People who work, there's, Adam Grant has done a ton of research on the four-hour work, the four-day work week. And it's pretty conclusive that people are more productive and there's less wasted time, fewer wasted meetings. I would encourage anybody to look at some of the stuff he's done on the four-day work week. And he has this research, and he'll take it to CEOs and say, look at all this research that proves a four-day work week. And they're like, mm, eh, eh, eh. like but, the, but the research is conclusive that that work-life balance makes better workers. And, and what I have to watch as a manager, and I would encourage other people to watch, that I think is a little bit tricky and to be honest, I struggle with a little more. I have more responsibility. I make more money. I should be working harder. And so on the one hand, I think one of the biggest ways that you communicate permission is by modeling. And so if I go on a vacation and I'm checking email every single day and checking in every single day, I'm sending the message that I expect you to do that when you go on vacation. If I'm sending you emails at 11 o'clock at night, if I'm sending you Slack messages at 11 o'clock at night, I'm sending you, I'm, I'm setting an expectation that I expect that of you. But on the other hand, I should be working harder. I make more money. I get a bonus. I get, I get perks that someone else who's working for me doesn't. And so that's something that I really struggle with because, and I don't know that I have the answer yet. Other than to be honest about that, I tell my team, look, I'm, I'm going to be checking email while I'm on vacation because I have to, but I don't want you to do it. I don't expect you to do it. I've started scheduling Slack messages. So if I'm working late at night and I send a Slack message, I'll just schedule it to show up at nine o'clock the next morning. Um, Same with emails, but I, I don't know quite how to, I feel like I should be working harder than the people that work for me. Like, and I want them to know that. 
but I also don't want the managerial path to look so unattractive that nobody wants to take it. I mean, I remember worrying about that when I was a young mom and had kids and I worked for someone who was working like 70 hours a week. And I was like, why do I want that job? I don't want that job. So that's something that is a conflict for me on, on handling it. And I, I think the best advice I could give to anybody else who's thinking about it is just be really honest about it. Be honest about what your expectations are. I would say you should never expect anyone to email you back at 11 o'clock at night unless you are a, a transplant surgeon. Most of us who are working in technology startups are not saving lives here. There's nothing that can't wait past a vacation. Um, we should allow our people to take vacations. We should allow people to take our their their um, paternity and maternity leave, their parental leave. We should allow all of those things. We should allow them to have their weekends. Um, absolutely. But we we have to work a little harder, I think. Sarah, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak with us. I think you've said so many interesting things that made me kind of re-examine a lot of some of my opinions about work-life balance, startups, management, and I appreciate you being very honest and upfront about all the experiences you've had. So thank you so much for, for being a guest on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.